Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. The surface of the planet isn't really increasing, so it's very important to, to, to kind of understand in a quantitative way where the limits are and how we're bumping up against limits and then what the implications are for, for policies. I think a price on carbon is probably one of the most important things we can be pushing for because it absolutely does help to get the costs uh, borne by the right players in the economic system. I'm very pleased today to introduce Susan Barnes. Susan's co-founder and director of Finance for Change at Global Footprint Network, one of the most highly respected scientific organizations addressing global ecological limits. Global Footprint Network aims to accelerate the use of the ecological footprint, a resource accounting tool that measures how much nature we have, how much we use, and who uses what. The network envisages a future in which human demands on nature are monitored as closely as the stock market. Thank you very much, Susan, for taking the time today to speak to the sustainability agenda. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks. I'm very much looking forward to hearing your background and journey and more about the Global Footprint Network. That might be a good place to start if you could tell me a little bit about what you do and how you ended up here. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, so Global Footprint Network uh, is a research organization that really is looking at resource flows around the world. Uh, We've been Uh, engaged in resource accounting since 2003. And uh, we're really trying to bring, you know, quantitative information to decision makers, whether it's in decision makers in government or in finance, or in the development um, space in terms of, uh, you know, development agencies that may be working um, with, uh, with communities trying to improve quality of life. So there's a lot of, um, you know, the whole premise is that this idea of ecological overshoot or the fact that humanity is demanding more from the planet than the planet can regenerate every year, this is having this has very important um, implications for policies at the national level, um, very important implications for investors uh, and for all you know anybody trying to improve quality of life on on the planet. so and and we're really trying to bring much more robust data to decisions. Uh, we all know that population increases and consumption increases are having an having an effect. Um, but we want to bring more precise and more economically relevant information to decision makers so they can they can improve their their policies. So that's what we've been doing. And um, for the last four years, I've personally been focused on, bringing this information to the finance industry. Um, and the reason is that um, the, the economic health of countries uh, is more and more uh, impacted by resource trends. And yet sovereign bond investors, those investors that invest in the debt of countries, um, really they would really benefit, they really do benefit from from better information on the resource side. So that's what we've been engaged in. Um, we just re- launched a report a couple of weeks ago in London looking at uh, food price shocks, for example, but we're also 
worked working in the area of carbon and climate and those sorts of risks, um, how they impact on countries, and then therefore how they impact on on their sovereign debt. Great, very interesting and very important, clearly, given the, the growing role of, of the finance industry. Can you talk a little bit about the ecological footprint. What is it that's distinctive and most useful about this approach? Well, the eco- ecological footprint is more than just an index or an indicator. It's actually an accounting system. So it's it's quite handy, really, um, because we have one planet. We know how much uh, land surface land area or land uh, surface of the planet we have. Um, we can measure how productive the planet is in in a you know a number of different areas. Uh, the productivity of our forests, our cropland, our grazing land, our fishing grounds. Uh, and also how much land we have available to absorb CO2. So that's on, a, on, the, on the supply side. And then we can look at how much human, humanity demands. And we look at that on a per capita basis. We look at it um, from the uh, perspective of a country, uh, a city, or any really any economic activity can, can have um, its ecological footprint measured. So it's, it's an accounting system that has two sides of a balance sheet. And you can compare, you know, demand with supply, and so it's it's really the only indicator of its kind. Um, and it's it's I think it's important because as humanity's um, demands increase, its consumption and population, uh, you know, the, the surface of the planet isn't really increasing. So it's very important to 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 kind of understand in a quantitative way what where the limits are and and you know how we're bumping up against limits and then what the implications are for for policies because that brings up the question of who is the audience for this information i guess it brings up the question of you know externalities and and the idea of maybe free riders the sense that you know something might be happening but how does that connect to our own individual behavior if you look at you know some global figures about you know as you mentioned some of these statistics about the overall scale of the footprint you know how does that tie in then with corporate and indeed you know government and country scale initiatives Hmm. yeah good question well yeah, where do I start? So it it is really interesting to just see the different dynamics that occur based on different individual um, consumption patterns or country consumption patterns. I think that can have a lot of policy implications and also kind of reveal some of the um, unintended consequences of our economic system, in, in fact. So, um, you know, we could start by even thinking about carbon emissions, for example, um, most people know that uh, it's it's the the demand of higher income countries that are driving carbon emissions, and yet countries that are producing our goods and services like China and India um, are really burdened economically with with the with risks associated associated with carbon emissions. So if kind of from a maybe an equity perspective or a just trying to understand the dynamics, um, I think it can, you know, the footprint can reveal a lot of important dilemmas. Um, some of our recent research, for example, uh, we just, uh, as I said, launched a report at Standard & Poor's uh, a few weeks ago in London, and we looked at food price shocks. So if you if you really understand, you know, the, the pressures that are being put on our food system right now, we've got growing populations um, and diets shifting as, as 
populations are increasing their income, they often will switch to meat-based diets, um, are causing a, a dynamic which causes higher food prices um, and more volatile food prices. And what we did was then look at what's the imp what were the impact on countries and also you know their their economies. And what we found was the countries that are driving the higher food prices are not the ones that actually are hurt by these food prices by and large. It's more low-income countries that, you know, really bear the brunt of food price shocks, which can cause higher inflation, um, which can, in countries that have tenuous social situations, um, can also cause social unrest. So it's very similar to what we see with the impacts of physical climate change. You know, the countries that are driving the carbon emissions um, are not always the one, are often not the ones who are suffering from the physical impacts of climate change, whether it's droughts or hurricanes. I mean, it's not that countries like the United States don't get hit by these effects, but their economies are more resilient. Um, so lower income and emerging market economies, they're, they're more fragile. So this is something that um, I think really needs to be elevated as a discussion um, among policymakers what you know how do we build the resilience of low income countries um and you know so that they're they're just more resilient to these sorts of shocks whether it's climate change or food price shocks um and you know these other issues that are water stress is another big one i'm thinking about the work that you talked about with the sovereign risk the sovereign debt and i'm just wondering underlying this is there a connection between doing good or trying to stop doing the, the the bad things, the things that are, you know, causing problems that should be connected into the financial system so that if a country is doing better, even a company is doing better, they should there should be some reward for that, some financial reward. And presumably the other side of that is is even starker that countries that are doing bad or doing worse should pay more or there should be some risk premium or the financial system in some way should reflect that. I'm wondering how, you know, how important is that idea and how well developed is it? Yeah, I think it, that's very important. Um, it's interesting when you, you, when you were, you know, of course, people should feel great about what happened in Paris. So the, the, the fact that governments came together and, uh, you know, and it had a, you know, a really successful global agreement. So that's very positive. But at the, behind the scenes, um, one of the things we think a lot about is how do you how do you motivate governments to you know follow through to take action to change their policies change the way the way that they're investing um the subsidies that they're uh delivering to the fossil fuel industry there's all kinds of activities that we want to change inside governments and um what what we're excited about is being bringing really the economic angle of it really proving you know putting ethics aside and putting what the right thing to do aside but basically looking at the hard numbers of the you know the the economic risks to a country if they don't transition um that's that's what we're really trying to do and so one of the most exciting things about working in the finance industry is that i mean one of the reasons why paris was so successful i think really was that investors were involved I mean, it's not the only reason. There were a lot of things that fell into place, um, and a lot of things that the negotiators did right this, the, you know, last year. But one of the, what I think, one of the things that fueled, um, 
you know, the strength of, of the, the negotiations was that investors were at the table. So when it comes to sovereign bonds, it's really interesting because sovereign bond investors look at economic fundamentals, but for the most part, what we're finding is they're not really, they don't have, they really need better information about climate risk and carbon transition risk and water stress and because they're becoming real economic issues now. So that what we're trying to do also is to get, you know, investors to have conversations with governments when they invest in their debt. Um, they do ask questions about all kinds of economic fundamentals, but are they also asking questions about the unburnable carbon that the country might have on its, you know, quote unquote balance sheet? Um, are they asking questions about the investments that the country's making and, you know, clean technology and um, low carbon economic, you know, systems? So it's one of the things we're excited about is getting getting more of a dialogue going on between governments and investors. If you look at what's going on in the industry in general, there's, of course, a lot of great work being done on the company side, looking at stocks, you know, looking at, uh, you know, oil companies and coal companies, um, a lot of great activity there. But only 25% of the unburnable carbon in the world is controlled by companies that are publicly traded. 75% of the oil reserves in the world are controlled by governments and private, you know, state-owned companies. So it's kind of, you know, we think of the sovereign bond market as sort of a sleepier part of the finance industry. Um, and, you know, I feel like we have to get all parts of the financial system engaged, uh, whether it's uh, bond investors uh, or credit rating agencies, um, the, you know, we want the environment ministries inside of governments engaged, but we also want their finance ministries engaged. So that's one of some of the most exciting work, I think, that, you know, is sort of on the horizon for the, the year ahead. I guess what I'm interested in in is talking about is, you know, the finance for change that, you know, the report you've just done on the sovereign credit risk and thinking about it in the context maybe of COP21 and the fact that the nations, you know, are taking more of a stance and stronger action on that. So I guess it's to really just ask, you know, what was the research about? What were the main findings? And what do you think would be the results of that? And maybe who the audience is? In the larger context around... Um you know, governments taking action on climate change. It's true that the Paris Agreement was just a complete watershed moment. And, you know, I think it, it couldn't have gone better <laughs> given all the challenges that we've had in prior negotiations. So that was quite optim, you know, it, it, quite encouraging. At the same time, we realize that action on climate change has to happen pretty much in the next five years. In if it's if it's delayed much more, you know, if if countries drag their feet, um, there's there's a possibility of it being more expensive and more economically damaging um, to to economies, just and more difficult. And then there's also a greater chance that we're not going to meet the mark. So even though we should feel very optimistic about Paris, there's also incredible urgency. And so one of the reasons why you know we're so engaged with this work is is that credit rating agencies and sovereign bond investors have a really influential voice on uh, over governments. Um, so you know governments are more likely to follow the lead of their central bank or their finance ministry 
than their environment ministry, unfortunately, but that's the case. So, 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 so our work can actually help to arm environment ministries with real economic risk data that, so they can have a dialogue inside their country about, yes, it's important for the planet, it's for, important for people, but it's also essential to our economic health. And by the way, bond investors are looking at this and credit rating agencies are looking at what our country is doing. You know, what investments are we making or not making? So, you know, a lot of governments have made, you know, very, you know, very important steps in their INDCs, the commitments, the public commitments that they've made um, to reducing carbon. But that really needs to be compared to what the governments are actually doing um, every year. How are they setting their budgets? Are they still subsidizing fossil fuels or are they, you know, really you know, really changing their policies at the national level. So that's one of the reasons why we're so engaged with uh, with bond investors. Right, right. That's very interesting. Just a quick question there. When you talk about bond investors, who are these in the main? Because I, I know there's a lot of institutional investors and pension funds and things, but you do hear about bond vigilantes and things, not necessarily on climate change at the moment, but presumably one day they might. Can you talk a little bit about who this group is? Sure. So, you know, asset managers like pension funds hire, um, I'm sorry, asset owners like pension funds hire asset managers to manage manage all their assets. And it's really those, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting relationship. So the asset managers sometimes are thought of as the experts and um, they're really, they really ought to be really getting their head around how to we measure risk in these portfolios and but they usually take their cues from asset owners like pension funds who say look we don't want to invest in countries that are making the problem worse or you know we want to invest in you know green bonds or whatever it is so they they look to the asset managers uh, companies like BlackRock or, or um, Alliance Bernstein they're just very large um, asset managers they manage all kinds of all kinds of different portfolios so those are the, those are the ones we're really working with because they're really they really need to be they really need to be armed with better risk uh, frameworks for really understanding and, and helping asset owners do what they really want to do. It's interesting. And the asset owners are they asking these questions? Are they saying because presumably there's a risk here and therefore you know fiduciary responsibility to think about these risks and start asking when is this going to really start to hit my portfolio and what kind of risks are they? Yeah, and uh, they're all over the board. I mean, there's there's a lot of you know uh, leadership being demonstrated, but also you know a lot of asset owners still especially in the United States unfortunately that just don't see it as a fiduciary responsibility they don't see it as a material you know risk they may have political um you know leanings <laughs> that get in the way of them understanding the risk but um yeah so it's all over the board really and what's the main mechanism for asset owners that are thinking about this? Because I know there are various different initiatives to take into account ESG type factors, but are there one or two groupings that you think particularly influential here? There's, well, PRI, I mean, signing on uh, as a PRI signatory is is an important step. And they've got a, um, they've got a carbon disclosure project 
um, that, that 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 folks can join and engage with other other investors on. So I think that's that's really probably the way where to look. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and what was the outcome of your research? I mean, this, the idea was to start taking into account risk factors. And therefore, I guess, presumably, that would ultimately affect pricing and risk of sovereign debt of different countries. Right. So so we did just launch a report. And, and this report was actually focused on food price shocks, and which is actually definitely uh, related to climate change. So so what, what what's really happening is that the, there's a bigger gap between what what our cropland can actually supply and what we're really demanding, and that has to do with, you know, growing populations, um, rising income, which tends to encourage uh, meat 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 based based diets, and at the same time, um, you know, there's not a lot more land to cultivate, and the land that we do have, there's some land maybe in, in you know in in Africa that that can be we can get a little bit more productivity out of, but um, but the but the ability of the earth to really supply the flow of food that we need is there's just a growing gap and what happens there what what that really causes is higher prices and higher price volatility, and can lead to food price shocks like what we saw in two thousand and eight, um, which a lot of people don't even think about it anymore, but it wasn't that long ago. Uh, and it was, you know, had a huge impact on economies. So what we, what we did was we said, what would happen if we had another food price shock on the order of what we had in 2008? Um, and what would be the impact um, on 110 countries? And we looked at their GDP growth, we looked at their balance of payments, and we looked at their inflation. Um, what we found was there are definitely there could be definitely significant economic impacts on countries. Um, by and large, it has it tends to be lower income countries um, that are mostly affected. That's partially because a bigger share of their household expenditures are on food compared to wealthier countries. So you know individuals are affected. Inflation could be high because of that. Um, on a total basis, India and China would have had sort of the, the biggest total impact on their economies. Um, but, you know, it kind of, you know, taking a step back in terms of, you know, what, what does this research really mean? We see a pattern that I think from a larger perspective, we really do need to address. And that is that the drivers of environmental and resource pressures come from higher income countries. You know, the, the carbon emissions largely come from countries that can, you know, consume a lot of fossil fuels. And and the drivers of food price shocks also come from higher income countries. And yet it's the lower income countries that are bearing the brunt of the impact. And these are countries that actually um they actually need more investment. They don't, you know, the uh they're countries that need more support and not, you know, be, you know, partially because they're being hit by climate change impacts and price volatility around food. Um, and they also, you know, they need investment there, but they're riskier investments. So that's kind of the, the conundrum is that these are countries that are, whose credit ratings are already low, can be relatively low. Um, and, 
the you know these sorts of environmental and resource pressures can actually even push their credit ratings down further making cost of capital higher for them at a time when that's the last thing they need so I just I think there there ought to be a conversation about um, how how countries can be supported, how they can be made more resilient. There's there's um, you know Swiss Re for example um, just got done with doing a study with S and P um, looking at disaster risk um, and the fact that a lot of countries are not um, adequately insured. So you know, making sure that these countries have proper insurance, that countries have crop insurance. There's there's a lot of different financial mechanisms and economic mechanisms that can be put into place, but um, I think it really just needs to be focused on quite a bit more. And what's the next stage in this research? Is there something specific in mind or, or just a more general intention to look at different parts of this you know, bigger question? Well, uh, we're doing two different things. The first thing is we're going to start to engage more with governments. Um, we, after we launched the the food price uh, shock re- research in London, I think it was last month. We also went down to Nairobi to the UNECA uh, conference, where there were 110 ministers um, gathered there, and there was a, a lot of interest in in this kind of data and a, and a dialogue around you know, economic risk. Um, so we're gonna be, in the next year, we're gonna be doing, you know, conducting more dialogues. We want, we'd like to see credit rating agencies talking to governments, talking to investors who invest in these government's bonds and, and just, just having a bigger dialogue about how to address risks. So that's one thing that we're gonna be doing. Um, the second thing is that you know, there's a lot of um, activity around divestment and looking at the two-degree transition. And all of this research tends to be focused on companies uh, and specific economic sectors or specific countries, and which is great work, really. Um, what we want to do next is to pull all this research together in a form that can be used by sovereign bond investors, because bond investors need to have an sort of an even treatment of every country they need you know rankings they need they need to look at it from a global perspective because they'll have you know portfolio of a number of countries they're investing in and they they want to be able to compare and to our knowledge there isn't any sort of tool out there yet and we you know we're just right on the the cusp cusp of being able to um you know pull that research together and offer it to to investors so that's one of our next projects What's the response been from finance ministers and to what extent are are they paying more attention to these kind of questions? You know, it really varies a lot country to country. Um, There's a bunch of countries where it's not on their radar at all. Um, You know, we know about that England is definitely on the forefront um, of being, you know, really understanding these these sorts of risks. Um, So, yeah, I think there's there's still an audience that, is sort of starting to wake up, but it, it, I'm sure it'll increase a lot through the, the remaining of the year. Great, great. Well, I guess the more research that's done and the more evidence and, and information that's available will help to get the message across. Thank you for that. That's been really helpful. What I'm finding is that there is a lot of interest in doing something, but by and large, people 
just need the tools. You know, the, the methodologies for measuring these things are complex, um, and a lot of investors just don't have the time uh, or the expertise maybe to to really drill down and sort it all out. So it's it's actually not so much, in some cases, it's not so much a question of will, it's just the mechanics of it. So I think that's that's the nice thing about being able to bring, you know, frameworks to the market because then they can just get picked up and and propagated and, and that can really help a lot. Sounds vitally important work. It seems to be obvious in a way, doesn't it, that particularly coming out of COP21 and things that if countries are going to be taking, talking about this, because this is clearly a big issue in the whole externalities, isn't it? The no connection between the pricing of who generates pollution and who bears the cost of it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's fascinating. And I'd like to come back maybe to that proportions you talked about, the ratio of the 25% to 75%. But I'm just wondering how asymmetry in the sense that, you know, the countries that are causing more of the problems aren't necessarily the ones that are seeing the consequences. So how does that play out in sovereign risk in the sense that, you know, you might be a polluter country in a sense, but you don't bear the burden of that? Yeah, no, it really, it really reveals... um a flaw in the economic system uh, in that countries, uh, lower income countries um, that are often, you know, producing the goods and services that the higher income countries consume are bearing the brunt of the risk. Um, I don't have any easy answers, but it, I think it definitely needs to be raised and discussed. Um, some really good work that's being done right now with um, with S&P and Swiss Re, they just came out with a report called The Heat Is On, um, and they looked at um, the vulnerability of um, countries, their credit worthiness, basically, um, to in the, in, the, in, the, you know, in the event that countries are suffering from climate change risk. And on the positive side, I mean, Swiss Re is doing some good work now around Bring, making sure that countries have access to crop insurance, for example. Um, there, there has to be some kind of pooling of risk or some, some way in which, you know, some fi- you know, fiscal or financial instruments that can be employed um, to help soften the blow and to, you know, to kind of pool the risk because, uh, you know, right now it's, it's very one-sided. So I, I think that, you know, Swiss Re's got some, you know, some really interesting um, innovations around bringing crop insurance to very small farmers um, using, you know, cell phone technology and and like sort of just in time delivery of insurance. Um, so that that's that's just one example. Right, um, right. But there, yeah. yeah. It brings up, I guess, an interesting question in the sense that where does a price for carbon fit in here? And how would that change things, assuming, you know, some in 10 years or five years that that was established and operational? Would that make the connection between polluting and economic costs clearer? And how do you see that? Absolutely. That's a great point. I think a price on carbon is probably one of the most important things we can be pushing for because it absolutely does help to get the, the, the costs <laughs> uh, borne by the right, uh, the right players in the economic system. There's a really great report uh, that was just come out, just came out earlier this year by the IMF um, called After Paris. Um, and one of their top recommendations is is you know, employing a, a price on carbon. And all the 
you know, all the economic benefits um, that can, you know, accrue from that. That's been a criticism or a comment some people have made, isn't it? That notwithstanding all the progress, that that remains a major hurdle. And it's a great way to, you know, fund um, what we need to fund um, and, you know, establish, establishing the right price signals. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's the one thing I think should be at the top of everyone's list. This resource accounting is fascinating, really, because it, it's an area that's been neglected and presumably tied in with the whole area of, of economic externalities, which have been taught in, in economics mm-hmm. for, for, for decades. But are we making progress there? You know, I think so much more needs to be done. It's, um, it's a really great question. Um, you know, one of the things I was really happy about um, in terms of the Paris Agreement was that they 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 included many more elements uh, in addition to carbon emissions. So the way we manage our land, and of course, land, um, of course, emissions from land uh, conversion or any kind of land management are important, but also the the you know the ability of countries to absorb CO2 really needs to be valued. So, so the Paris Agreement signaled that there, there's, there's more to consider than just carbon emissions, um, that land is important, and we're looking at a net, net um, zero carbon uh, world. So, you know, we're taking into account the, the ability of our land to absorb. Um, but the problem is that there aren't, there aren't really good um, policy or economic instruments that can reward a country from for for keeping its forest standing. You know, or you know, if, you know, a tree. I mean, a forest is is only really valuable if the trees are cut. Um, this is a <laughs> a huge problem, and so there we're only in the very beginning stages. I think um, of developing you know international agreements and economic structures that will reward countries for for absorbing co2 and for managing land um, I mean the red program is is one great example of a, an innovation of course um, but you know really a lot more needs to be done and um, otherwise these incentives are going to be driving us in the exact wrong direction it's one of the reasons why I I'm fond of the ecological footprint as a as a measure as well, just to kind of bring it around to the footprint again, because um, as we try to move out of carbon, we're going to be putting more pressure on our land, um, to, and our land will be you know even more important, and there'll be more competing demands, and so and the footprint can actually look at you know it's because it's measuring everything in 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 one unit, it, it can look at the trade-offs between, you know, if I cut the forest to grow more food, or do I keep the forest standing to absorb CO2, or do I convert cropland to grazing land to raise cattle? I mean, it's, um, you know, there's only so much surface, and this is, you know, it's a tool for helping us manage these trade-offs, but, you know, getting out of carbon is is going to put a huge demand on the land. And so I think, um, you know, a lot more needs to be done in terms of, you know, like I said before, rewarding countries for uh, managing these assets for the world. That's very interesting. When it comes to corporate sustainability, what began as, you know, maybe more of a reputation or a PR type thing has for certainly 
many leading companies become an economic and business uh, agenda. It's become something that is important financially for the companies, They're not just in terms of saving costs, but also in terms of you know growth. Some companies like Unilever and so forth, a clear business case for sustainability. And you talked about that as well. I guess in some sense, that's part of what is important at a government level, that it gets translated beyond it's a good thing to do or the right thing to do to something that's economically essential to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, and it goes beyond just uh, climate, but also, you know, a company's entire supply chain um, and water, you know, is, an, is a great example. Um, you know, where does a company site its plants? Where does it source its supply? Where, you know, you know, these sort of, cons these constraints are really essential to, to understand. Um, aside from, you know, just the customer expectations these days and, and what, what people really, you know, expect from companies. Um, you know, I, I think the, you know, being an American, um, I'm often obviously dismayed at how um, backward our, our our federal government has been. But of course, you know, leading companies, global global corporations, have been on the forefront of of you know addressing climate change and and many other types of resource um, constraints for a long time. To some degree, there is, you know, now clearer mechanisms in terms of stock market performance, how investors respond, the degree to which they're taking into account, you know, these kind of risks. It seems that the, the cause and effect and the, I guess, the location of the economic response to a company's sustainability efforts is becoming clearer. But maybe at a, at a state level and a government level, that's not so clear. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it seems to me like that that corporations have been been engaged in this conversation for so much longer than governments have. You know, I used to I used to work a lot with corporations, and uh, I really like it because they're they're more nimble. You know, and um, governments uh, governments are inherently difficult <laughs> because you you can get a lot of progress, and then you know you have a change of administration and. Uh, everything gets stalled. I mean, it's um, it's true. I think um, it's pretty clear that companies uh, have made the case, and a lot of companies are benefiting, you know, from from a you know progressive um, approach to sustainability. That's it. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. see, see the connection and 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 clearly the work you've done in terms of sovereign bonds is an important part of that making that connection between you know risky behavior bad behavior and financial returns it's a big task <laughs> but uh but it's exciting and um you know it's just uh it's kind of like you have to have all parts of the system engaged and i think that that's the that's the interesting part now is just um getting folks engaged that have been you know I, literally last year i would talk to some investors who just didn't believe the governments would have an agreement in paris so they it wasn't on their radar they didn't think it was important to look at and so everything's changed in the space of a year uh so this is this is i, mean, I think it's really exciting times right now
Yes. And, and in terms of governments, then, I mean, what are a few things that you think would, would really help make this connection and help get change there? One of these is clearly this connection between the price that governments pay for their for their debt and the riskiness and their contribution to climate change and to just sustainability generally. Are there a couple of other things that you think are essential? Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I'd say if you just look at the you know, what we're calling, people are calling the transition risk. Um, You know, I think one thing that's really important to do is to look at, for every government to say, you know, what is, what does our economy look like in a two degree world? You know, what's, what's our carbon budget? And then find those areas uh, that they can, they can focus on improving, whether it's their energy mix um, or even the, the way that the the economy generates value. So even for an oil producing nation, um, you know, we've been really impressed with the United Arab Emirates, which has been for over five years, probably more, um, you know, diversifying its economy. So it's, you know, it has a lot of oil revenue, but um, no less so now <laughs> because of the low prices, but over, over the, you know, the, the structure of their economy has really shifted and now they're one of the leading um, producers of solar panels and low, you know, low carbon technologies. Whereas other oil producing nations have just been using this oil income as current income, um, which is really making the country vulnerable. So, yeah, I'd say you know we're really interested in you know where where the country is in terms of its carbon intensity, how far it needs to go to to you know transition to a two degree two degree world and then it's really interesting to look at their indcs or their intended um carbon reduction plans that they put forth in paris and to say how how robust are these indcs Uh, are they going to do the job how much further does the country need to go um to meet the gap between where it is and and where it needs to go and there's a lot of work that needs to be done um so i mean paris was a wonderful success and um the work has only only begun just maybe finally that that question about you know what governments should do um what are some of the things that you think will help make them do it (laughs) (laughs) i guess you know i'm i'm so focused on um you know on the investor side and i i don't want to overstate it but at the same time you know, governments really do sit up and take notice when credit rating agencies comment on the things that are important to them, um, or where when when debt uh, investors uh, ask questions. So, you know, I, I I think that's one important lever. Um, and the more we can make the economic case, uh, the bet you know the the better, um, especially you know, a case on the positive side. So kind of rewarding countries um, or making the case that their economy will be stronger um, in a two degree world, which is now going to be inevitable. I mean, it's a irreversible um, movement towards decarbonization. It's not even a question anymore. Um, So the more we can, you know, get that conversation going and bringing quantitative economic information uh, to these decision makers, the better. 
if I understand correctly, what you're doing is looking at scenarios and saying what countries will do well and do less well in a two degree world, world where the temperature has gone up two degrees. But how does that connect then with who's actually driving that a bad country? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wish I had an easy answer for that. I think it's a uh... You know, it's beyond tragic. It's actually, you know. Yeah, I suppose it comes back to that to the <laughs> question of the the carbon pricing again. It's just making that yeah. connection between cause and effect. That the countries that you know are doing good, as you say, that are growing forests, are making their forests, you know, uh, keeping their forests and reducing carbon generally, they should be compensated, or there should be, you know, a mechanism that reflects that behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's the way to correct. An economic system that's uh, not really working for us, you know, it's not it's not designed to deliver <laughs> the, what we really want. Are you optimistic, Susan? Where are we on the journey? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm I'm just constantly amazed at the number of intelligent, um, ambitious, um, amazing people that are throwing everything they have at this. At, the, at this issue, and not only people, but institutions. I mean, the largest investors, the largest corporations, uh, some very impressive countries. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the momentum is all going in the right direction. Um, and at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's pretty obvious that we're in for a rocky ro- road. I mean, we already have, we already have many millions of people suffering the effects of climate change now and resource scarcity. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting because in wealthier countries, it's easy to say, oh, you know, life looks pretty normal to me. But the, you know, the impacts are already being felt in devastating ways. And um, and so, you know, it's the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> I was about to, I was about to quote William Gibson actually because I read an interview with him recently where he said that people said that he had a very dystopian view of the future and he said well actually for many people living in awful conditions around the world they would actually be quite happy to live in the landscape of one of his books than in the, t- <laughs> the terrible worlds they live in and yeah. you know that are where these places have resource depletion and you know uh, just terrible terrible conditions. Yeah. But thank you very much, Susan. That's been a fascinating discussion. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And it's very uh, interesting um, to see the, the great work that you're doing. And I wish you the best with that. And thank you very much for taking your time to speak to the sustainability agenda today. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you for listening to the sustainability agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.